This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 31st edition of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Today I have a very special guest, New York Times best-selling sports author Jeff Perlman. I have Daniel Billis as our station engineer today and John Koya, one of our new Rainier Avenue Radio people. Jeff, I'm going to give a little introduction of you here, which I customarily do with my guests. Jeff has written three books about baseball, three about football, and one book about basketball. Many of Jeff's books have spent weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Jeff has written books about Brett Favre, Walter Payton, the 80s LA Lakers, Roger Clemens, and several other subjects. Jeff has this new book out, Football for a Buck, about the crazy rise and crazier demise of the United States Football League in the 1980s. Jeff's book, I believe right now, is the 16th best-selling book in the country. Jeff, we're going to definitely talk about your book today. I finished it this week. I highly recommend it. Um, Jeff, wor- Jeff worked for seven years at Sports Illustrated as a baseball writer. Jeff worked at Newsday. He's a frequent contributor, for, had been a frequent contributor for ESPN.com. Today, Jeff, we're going to learn more about you, your career, and get into various uh, sports-related subjects. We only have 27 minutes, not going to get everything, but we'll have a fun conversation. Jeff, I know you're doing a lot of uh, national interviews around the country. Thank you for stopping by Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. You know, as we speak, I feel like we're making history, because I know you've had a lot of guests, but have you ever had a guest stuck in L.A. traffic while eating McDonald's? I love it. It it, it kind of reflects the uniqueness of Jeff Perlman, right? There you go. And wearing flip-flops and pants. I love it. I love it. Native New Yorker living in L.A. now. Jeff, first of all, um, how did you get the bug to be a sports writer and sports author? Well, I, uh, I grew up in a small town, Mayo Pack, New York. Uh, I had no one, no one in my family cared about sports at all. And um, we used to sit around the table reading the New York Times. Um, and I would get the sports section. That's kind of how it started, actually. I don't know. I just remember vividly reading the sports section because nobody else wanted it. It was the one section in the Perlman household you were allowed to bring to the bathroom because <laughs> nobody else was reading it. Like, my mom was very strict. You could not, you could not under any circumstance, bring the main news section to the bathroom. But you could bring the sports section. So I'd be reading. I'd be carrying around the, the house. I'd be looking at the pictures. I was really – I just got into the colors of sports, the sounds of sports. I was a relatively athletic kid. I played youth sports. It was a battle because nobody cared. My brother didn't care. My parents didn't care. But I just kind of grew this love for it over time. And I knew I was never going to play for the Yankees or, or the Jets. But um, I really enjoyed writing. And I guess over time I sort of developed that. Great background, Jeff. It's interesting how you didn't grow up with a household that loves sports that much, and you went into the sports writing direction. That That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, literally, like, Super Bowl Sunday in my house, the only way I could get anyone to watch these games with me, like the Super Bowl, I would give my dad a back scratch, and that was <laughs> a sucker for back scratches. If I gave him a back scratch, he would sit there and pretend to be interested. Otherwise, no chance. We became a very well-known sports author and writer. Jeff, who are some living and or deceased sports writers and sports authors that you admire? I'll, I'll throw out one name. I always like David Halberstam as a sports author. Throw out a couple uh, sports writers and sports authors you've always admired. Well, I mean, Mark Friegel is a great writer. Jonathan I, great writer. Uh, sports Illustrated, I grew up reading a lot of these guys. William Knack, Lee Montville, Frank DeFord. Um when I was at the magazine, guys like Rick Riley, Gary Smith, John Wertheim. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on. Sally Jenkins and Susan Schlosser. I, I was the kid. Mike Freeman, I'll tell you what, Mike Freeman, who now writes for Bleacher Report, we both went to the University of Delaware. And Mike, I think, graduated six years before I did. Mm-hmm. And he was the guy I looked to 
in every possible way when I was in college because he was a guy from Delaware who made it big in sports writing. And I would study his articles, not just read them for, you know, out of interest, but he was covering the Giants for the New York Times. I would read everything he wrote, pay attention to transitions, leads, quotes, how he did it, what he did. I used to send him my clips, and he would write back and take apart my clips. He became a really big role model for me as I came along. Probably the biggest role model I had working in sports journalism. Kind of neat, Jeff, how, how several different writers have influenced you, it seems like, in different ways. You mentioned a whole spectrum of well-known sports writers. So it's interesting how you, you there's a lot that seem to have influenced you. This is Paul Schneiderman of Sports & Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with acclaimed sports author Jeff Perlman. Jeff, back in 1999, I remember it very well. We're, we're very close to the same age. You did an interview with the then Atlanta Braves pitcher John Rocker. In that interview, Rocker expelled some very derogatory views about minority groups, gays, and others. And the interview definitely put you on the map, Jeff, as a young sports journalist. It's kind of like the young lawyer who got a big case. That was a, definitely a huge story that broke your Rocker interview. Jeff, I, I know you wrote an article about 15 years later about that. Um, you apparently faced some retaliation in Major League Baseball locker rooms. Did that eventually get better, Jeff? Oh, yeah, of course. Because there's such a turnover that over time, you know, I would say if you went around Major League locker rooms today and asked how many guys either have heard of John Rocker, maybe it'd be 50%, 40%, 30%. So just over time, guys get phased out. and They no longer play, and then the teammates are no longer – because at the time, it was awkward. It was super awkward. Oh, I bet. The guys were pissed. They felt defensive. They felt like something was violated between the code, between writer and athlete. Um, so it was rough for a while. But now, I mean, no one would even recognize me in a major league locker room. The turnovers are super, super high every year. So, you know, you move on. You need to learn from it. And you, you're, you're One of the things you need to have as a, as a journalist that that really gave me is thick skin. Um I still need to get better about that, but you really develop thicker and thicker and thicker skin as you go along. So getting people, telling, having people sort of really pissed off at me, I mean, if nothing else, you gave me thick skin. Oh, I bet. And as a young journalist, I'm sure that was kind of overwhelming that you did this story on John Rocker and you have all these players mad at you and you're just simply reporting what, what Rocker told you. So that that that's a uh, that was quite an episode, Jeff. I remember it very well. Paul Schneiderman again on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with acclaimed writer Jeff Perlman. Jeff, I'm not going to get into all your, your past books today. We're definitely going to talk about your uh, football for a buck, but I want to hit on a couple of your other books. You wrote a book, Showtime, about the 1980s L.A. Lakers, and I grew up in Seattle, and our late Seattle Supersonics used to play the Lakers a lot, so they were a frequent rival of the Sonics, those 80s Lakers teams. And give me your take, Jeff, on Pat Riley. Was Riley a good coach, or did he just have great players on his team? That's always one of the big sports debates. Wow, I think he was a tremendous coach. I mean, he wasn't the most likable guy always, but I think he had to go down as one of the greatest coaches in NBA history. And, you know, I always think, like, there are very few coaches of that level who are simply outsmarting other coaches. You know, like, Ty Riley was a former NBA player. He'd been coached well. Casey Jones was a former NBA player. You know, like, guys like Yubi Brown and Stan Albeck and even later on Phil Jackson, like, all these guys know how to play basketball, and most of them know how to explain it. Riley was one of the best motivators of all time. He was a very good X's and O's coach, but he was a tremendous motivator of his players, and he was really into the psychology of coaching basketball and coaching sports. So I think he goes down as one of the – I mean, to me, he's right there with Phil Jackson and um, 
Fred Auerbach as on the holy trinity of great NBA coaches where he was great with X's and O's, but what he did even better was he understood how to motivate such disparate personalities from Kareem to Magic to Michael Cooper. You, whoever you brought in, he was able to manage them. That was, Phil Jackson was the exact same way. And Riley got five rings in the 1980s as a coach, so I'm not taking anything away from it all as a coach. I just heard that sentiment expressed over the years. Maybe Riley wasn't the greatest coach. He just had great players. But you gave a great rebuttal that, Jeff, to that thought. Or Let me just say one more thing about it. Yeah. I think really tells his greatness. This to me is actually, this to me is the greatest testament to Pat Riley. He coaches the Lakers. He coaches run-and-gun offense, you know, magic showtime offense. Then he goes to the Knicks. And he sees what his personnel is. And his personnel is Ewing and Oakley and Anthony Mason um, and John Starks. And he completely changes his approach. They become a slow-down team, a beat-you-up team, a low-post team. He got them to the NBA Finals. They didn't win, but he got them to the Finals. For a coach to be able to completely change the way he coaches a team's you know, process right. is amazing. Because I always think like, I always think of Bum Phillips in the NFL, the Houston Oilers coach. He had Earl Campbell, and he ran the I formation, and he did it really well. And he went to New Orleans, and he no longer had Earl Campbell. And then when he had Earl Campbell, he wasn't good. And he still ran the same exact offense with different personnel. Great coaches don't do that. Great coaches adjust to their players. That's what Riley did. Well, good points. Jeff, you really gave an interesting perspective there that those 80s Lakers teams that Riley coached were significantly different than those 90s Knicks teams. So that's something definitely to, to chew over. Jeff, I want to move on a little bit to your to your books about Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds. And I could ask you so many different kinds of questions about Bonds and Clemens, but let me sort of package this question together and give me your take on it. So Clemens, as we know, was ultimately acquitted in a court of law on his criminal charges. Bonds' conviction was eventually overturned by the Ninth Circuit. The fact, Jeff, that these two players were ultimately legally exonerated of their criminal charges, do you think these legalities should help them in their Hall of Fame chances? Uh, I I don't, personally, because um, I am just not a fan of rewarding cheating. And I know that's simplistic, and someone could say, well, they use greenies, or they, you know, whatever, back in the day, or guys were doctoring the baseball, and blah, blah, blah. I don't care. This was my generation. This was a generation I covered. And to reward guys for deliberately cheating, to reward guys. I mean, there's zero doubt that Bonds and Clemens used. I mean, zero doubt. And when I say zero, I, I mean zero. There's no there's just no argument to be made anymore. And you can, again, people would say, well, it wasn't in baseball's, it wasn't specifically laid out in baseball's rules that you could, can't use performance-enhancing drugs. But it violated the law of the United States of America as far as you cannot just get a you can have to use steroids and HGH without proper prescriptions, which neither of those men had. Ultimately, I'm just not a fan of cheating. That's what it comes down to for me. I'm not a fan of cheating. Don't, I don't see how you have a Hall of Fame talk about integrity and honor and then allow someone who cheats to get in. So, Jeff, you view it as more of a technicality that they were exonerated of criminal charges in, in federal court. You, you, that, you, that's for you not a huge deal in your analysis then on whether they should be in the Hall of Fame. To me, this is what, this is what I always think about. For years and years and years, all throughout my youth and much of my adulthood, the biggest record in sports, the two biggest records in sports, 61 and 755, right? Both those numbers are gone, completely gone. Hank Aaron, a man who battled so much racism, who got the most vile letters, phone calls, threats, 
was just erased from the record books because two guys decided they, they could cheat and it would help them in their whatever, grand quest. I just find that unforgivable. So I don't care. Uh, the court of law doesn't matter to me in the Hall of Fame case. It's just it's about baseball and about a lack of integrity. One more question on this, Jeff. I get you back one day. We can talk more about this. But one more question. How about the argument that like guys like Gaylord Perrier in the Hall of Fame, they were linked to, to spitballs and so forth. Do you buy that at all, that mitigation kind of argument there? No, because I think if I were covering Gaylord Perry, I'm not cheating. Yeah, I don't believe in cheating. I know that makes me simplistic. But I always think, like, what am I teaching my kids? Like, why am I telling them? I feel this way actually with Donald Trump, too. Why am I teaching my kids to be polite? if you get rewarded for treating people like crap? And why am I teaching my kids not to cheat if you get rewarded for cheating? Like, why Why do we have all these lessons? Why do we stress all these ethics if by the time we're adults, we just ignore them all and say, eh, it doesn't really matter. Forget what you learned. Forget everything you were taught through the years. It's insignificant. I just don't get it. Well, your points are compelling. Many people agree with you on the on the Clemens and Bonds Hall of Fame candidacies. Jeff, we're going to move on to your, to your very highly high-profile new book. But real quickly... Jeff, you also wrote a book about Brett Favre, the famous quarterback, and Favre apparently would not agree to do an interview with you. Why, why wouldn't Favre interview with you for that book, Jeff? Do you, you think it had to do with John Rocker at all? Oh, no, 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 no. Um, first of all, I interviewed almost every family member. I right. interviewed all his siblings. I interviewed his mother, cousins, uncles, aunts, on and on and on. Um, he agreed to a bunch of interviews, then canceled them, and then finally sent me a text saying like if he wants to tell his story he's going to tell it on his own and i've said all along and i really mean this yeah nobody owes it to me to talk to me just like nobody owes it to you to talk to you you know what i mean like if i didn't want to do this interview certainly my right right of or course. if you want to, if i want to interview you you're under no obligation to talk to me i'm writing a book about brett Favre. he's making zero dollars and zero cents off of it he wants to tell his story his own way or maybe he doesn't want to tell his story at all it's totally his right there's I mean, John Rocker was a racist, vile piece of crap. Brett Favre, to me, has a lot of really admirable and decent qualities about him. I think he's a really good dad. He's obviously a great grandfather. He just didn't want to talk. Sure. I no beef with that. Yeah, and I wasn't comparing Brett in any way to John Rocker. I was just wondering if maybe there was some nervousness about him, perhaps, doing an interview with you. But I, I understand your point. He I just, don't think so. Yeah. You know what? So many years have passed since that Rocker. I mean, that Rocker thing was 20 years ago. And the truth of the matter is, the vast majority of athletes I've spoken to about Rocker over the years um, completely understand that if someone's going to go off to you on the record on a racist, xenophobic, homophobic rant, um, that's their fault, not yours. And you're a journalist and they're speaking on the record. So, yeah, I got some, I got some you know, blowback at the time. But the vast, vast, vast majority of athletes I've known through the years, when they find out I wrote Rocker, they're just intrigued. I remember I was in the Mets clubhouse after that came out, and uh, the clubhouse guy comes up to me and he's like, "Hey, uh, Mike Piazza wants to talk to you." And I didn't know Mike Piazza, and I was like, "Really?" And I went over, and Piazza's like, "You're Jeff Perlman?" I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "What was that guy thinking? Like, <laughs> right. What was he thinking?" He just so most guys are like that. I don't think I can't imagine Brad Favre was looked back into history. So I wrote a John Rocker story and didn't talk for that. Yeah, reason. no, I, it was just, uh, it was just, uh, that's the fun thing with interviews. You can throw out, uh, throw out ideas and get yeah, a response. Uh, this is Paul Schneiderman of sports and stuff on Rainier Avenue radio with uh, New York times, bestselling sports author, Jeff Perlman. Jeff, we're going to move on to your new book, uh, football for a buck. We got about maybe 11, 12 minutes left. I'm going to focus on this book on your book for us, the interview. So it was a terrific book. I read it this week. 
And Jeff, one thing that surprised me, you mentioned this on Twitter, that you apparently had some trouble getting this now best-selling book published. Why would a sports book about the demise of the USFL, written by a well-known sports author, with a focus on Donald Trump's role, our current president's role, the demise of the USFL, have trouble finding a publisher? I was just surprised by it. Tell us why you think you had some challenges getting the, thing, getting the book going. Um, I'll put it to you this way. I would say, in America, people under the age of 35, 40, I'd say 7% have heard of the USFL. And that's, that's tough. That's tough. The USFL came and went in a blink, and yeah, produced a lot of stars. It's a crazy, crazy, crazy story. But people don't remember it that well. And it's funny, I've had some interviewees, interviewers say to me, uh, why do you think people are so fascinated by the USFL? And I always think they're not. You have to convince them. You have to show them why it's fascinating. So the books I've written in the past from, you know, Walter Payton to Brett Favre, those are subjects people knew about and remembered and were very vivid. Sure. The USFL is not. Uh, I point. I asked you a question about what about the USFL's decision to switch from the spring to the fall. And Donald Trump, the owner of the New Jersey Generals, was very big in trying to push the league to move to the fall. Although there were major recommendations against it. Quantify it, Jeff. What what role did the USFL's decision to move from the fall? I'm sorry, from the spring to the fall, play in the in the league's demise? It was basically a knife to the heart. It killed it. It really killed it. It was the end of it. It made no sense. It was unwise. Um, it was all about Donald Trump getting an NFL team. That's what that was entirely about. Not 50%, not 75%. He wanted an NFL team. He thought after he was told he would never get an NFL team, and after he was rejected by, in an effort to buy the Colts, he thought, I'm just going to force this. It was sheer will. And he didn't care about the other owners. He didn't care about his players. It was all about him getting an NFL team, and it completely backfired. And that was the death. The original idea of the USFL, I always say, was a good idea. Spring football, not going head to head, slow growth. It was a great idea. And he came along and just was a tornado. And that was it. Paul Schneiderman of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with acclaimed New York Times bestselling writer Jeff Pearl and the author of this great new book, Football for a Buck. Has Trump formally denied it, Jeff? Has he ever, has he ever admitted he was colluding to try to get an NFL team during the time he owned a USFL team? No. Definitely not. He, I was just talking to Mike Tolan last night. Mike Tolan was the director of the uh, 30 for 30 small potatoes. Yeah. And he got Trump. He was the last guy really to get Trump to talk about the USFL. Um, and Trump insists he was good for the league. This is a delusion you see with him sometimes. He insists he was good for the league and what he did for the league was great. And he put it on the map and blah, 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 blah. And I will say he did put it on the map. The map of sports leagues that have died unnecessarily or quick and ruthless deaths. Um, he'll never admit it. When's the last time you heard that guy, even if you like him, when's the last time you heard that guy actually say, yeah, I was wrong about that? Well, you're that right. That was my bad. You're right, Jeff. The president's not the kind of person that ever admits he's, he's wrong. Jeff, I was reading your book. I read every page of it. I really enjoyed it. That Trump really bullied other USFL owners. And some of that behavior we see right now with Trump's behavior as president. And, for example, he tried to get other USFL owners to pay for a signing of of Doug Flutie. Why, why do you think, Jeff, so many USFL owners caved to him and capitulated to, to him? I mean, it's really, it's really a past prologue kind of thing, if you think about it. I asked myself, I always thought when he got elected president recently, I thought, well, at least the Republican Party will stand up to him when they disagree. And they really haven't. He has a way. He embarrasses you. 
He makes you feel small. He will praise you. He treats you kind of like a pet. Right. He'll give you praise, and then he'll kick you and, you know, put you in your cage. Um, and these are – he was in a position of power because he owned a New York team. And that was a powerful thing in the USFL because the other big market teams had died. And they needed him. They felt like they needed Donald Trump. Um, and they needed the New York team to work out. So that gave him a lot of power, you know. And, and he convinced one guy, and one guy led to two, and two led to three. And at the same time, his main enemy, John Bassett, the owner of the uh, Bandits, was diagnosed with brain cancer. And he sort of fell out of, the, you know, out of his role. And there was no one really to challenge Trump. And Trump just walked all over everybody. It's but, amazing looking back in hindsight. It really is. Because you do ask yourself, how, how did these guys, these successful men, go along with this? Oh, I but know they it. They were bullied. Oh, I know it. It's, it's, it's really sick. Yeah, by the way, Jeff, I got a quick comparison for you. It seemed like John Bassett was almost Trump's John McCain when he was a USF owner. Some, some guy that, that just got in his doghouse. And even when John Bassett got sick, Donald Trump would not give up on going after Bassett. Right, Jeff? Yeah, I've made that mis- uh, comparison many times. You're 100% correct. Um, I mean, same thing, brain cancer. Same thing, thorn in his side. Same thing, the guy who saw through Donald Trump. They both did, McCain and Bassett. They both saw through him completely. And when they got sick, Trump walked all over them. I mean, it's very similar. You know, uh, Donald Trump signs Doug Flutie, gives him the biggest contract in pro football history, writes a letter to the other owners saying why they should pay for his contract. That Donald Trump signed him for the good of the league, and you guys should pay. The Mexico Wall, 30 years beforehand, none of them paid for it. They were like, screw you, we're not paying for your, for your quarterback. Same exact, the same devices are recycled in that guy's life and career over and over and over again. And it's why I say to people, people say, oh, you're, uh, you're biased. You know, you're biased against Trump. And I would say, try writing a USFL book and, and thinking he's a good and admirable man. It is impossible. No matter what, it is impossible because you see what he did. Jeff, we got about five minutes left. Get some more subjects in here. I want to direct the listeners to go to page 319, I believe it is, of Jeff's book, um, Jeff's great book here, Football for a Bucket. You really go into some of the, the modern comparisons of Trump's behavior with how he owned the USFL team. I hope I hope I have the right page number of the book, but it's just amazing the perils, Jeff, you bring up in the book, and we're talking about some of them right now. Paul Schneiderman of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with Jeff Perlman, author of Football for a Buck. Jeff, real quickly, there's a, a USFL owner who I actually know a bit personally. He lived in Seattle for many years, Bill Oldenburg. I got to tell you, Jeff, Bill you Oldenburg. You know him? I know Bill Oldenburg a little bit. Not well, but I know him a little bit. He is one of the biggest storytellers I've ever met in my entire life. He's kind of a... In, in a roundabout way, he's kind of a character and kind of entertaining. But you sort of suggest in your book, Jeff, that Oldenburg may, be, may have been the second worst USF owner behind Trump. Is that where you are in terms of quantifying Bill Oldenburg as the USFL owner? Either second or third. And uh, it's so funny. When I wrote my Brett Favre book, one of the owners of the Atlanta Falcons was talking about Jerry Glanville, the old coach. Yeah. And he said, you can, be, you can believe about 30% of what Jerry tells you. And I would say with Oldenburg, it's by 15%. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he was bluster. He didn't have money. He said he had. He signed these guys to huge, huge contracts, including two future Hall of Famers, Steve Young and Gary Zimmerman. Oh, yeah. He didn't have the, he didn't have the money. He bragged and boasted. He wanted. He was the West Coast Trump of the USFL. He really was. He, they played in a stadium where they couldn't draw people, and he never understood why. And he thought he could spend his way into this success. 
He once showed up at a meeting. He called himself Mr. Dynamite. And he showed up at a meeting and dropped his pants in the middle of the meeting and said, if you want to dance with the big boys, you got to boogie-woogie with the king. Yeah, I, I read mean, that he was book. insane. Anyway, I mentioned Bill Oldenburg. He's a, he's a he's a real character. I'll leave it at that. Jeff, there, there's, of course, there's a famous USFL NFL lawsuit where the USFL got one dollar, three dollars of treble damages and their antitrust suit against the against NFL. Donald Trump, and you point this out in your book. Apparently, his testimony went terrible at trial, and he apparently reflected the dysfunctional nature of the USFL. Based on your research, Jeff, do you think if Trump had testified maybe even a little bit better, the USFL could have gotten a better jury verdict than one dollar? No, because I think um, the main problem they had was it was their fault. Like, their demise was their fault. The lawsuit itself made no sense. Moving to fall made no sense. They just they just commissioned a $600,000 study for the owners of the USFL teams, whether it pays to go to fall or spring, and the conclusion was very strongly, don't move to fall, whatever you do. So they ignored every piece of wisdom. So Trump's testimony obviously didn't help, and the NFL saw him as like this great gift from the gods because he was so awful. But the biggest problem was they just, just they followed him and decided to move the fall. They didn't have a plan to do it. Well, as you point in your book, Jeff, the USFL was like their own worst enemy despite some of the NFL's monopoli- monopolistic practices. Well, Jeff, we got less than a minute left. What does the future hold for Jeff Perlman? I'm going to start my own spring football league. I'm <laughs> going to call it the USFL, too. And you and I are going to start the league and we're going to make it great. We're going to make it great again, spring football great again. Make spring football great again. Jeff, we, we have less than 30 seconds. Sir, any, any new books on the horizon at all? Uh, I don't, I, I'm working on an NBA-related book, but I don't, uh, I don't know if I'm ready to break it out yet just because I'm paranoid. But I'm working on an NBA book. Well, you'll break it on sports and stuff first, right, Jeff? Yes, I will. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. You and I stay in touch. Fun interview. All right. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye.